There's a story that was told to me while I was in seminary um, by one of the professors, and the story was of a new bishop-elect. Those of you that have been, you know, in the Anglican world for a while know that bishops are elected by the diocese, but then there's this period in between their election and their um, installation as bishop, right? Just like the president. He's elected, but then he's inaugurated later on. Anyway, during this time, the new bishop-elect went around to some of the key parishes in his diocese. And he chose these parishes because they were um, indicative of the diocese. So there was a, a large parish, there was a really evangelical parish, and there was a small struggling Anglo-Catholic parish. As the bishop went around, he didn't go in his Episcopal robes, he didn't go looking like a bishop. Rather, he dressed himself as a homeless man. And he put on rags and didn't shower the night before. And showed up on the doorstep of each church to see how he'd be greeted. Well, he went to the first church, the mega church, and people rushed by him. The church of some 500, most of them didn't know each other anyway. And so they didn't invite him in. He went then to the evangelical church, the church that was all about spreading the good news, right? The church that was all about evangelism, and he stayed there at the door. And some people talked to him there. They interacted with him. They even invited him in for worship. Then he went to the small Anglo-Catholic parish struggling and was seated at the door there. And one of the old ladies came out and greeted him and brought him in to the parish and gave him a cup of coffee, and then sat next to him and showed him how to use the Book of Common Prayer. How, you know, it was ridiculous if you knew the situation, how to go through the communion service. But she was very attentive to every detail, and then made, you know, they had coffee and, uh, and cookies after the service. Well, imagine the fright and amazement of the rectors as this bishop-elect stood up at their first clergy meeting, now not dressed as a homeless man, but dressed in his full Episcopal regalia, and started to talk to them about hospitality. What does it mean to be hospitable? What does it mean to be welcoming? We talk about hospitality, fellowship, welcoming all the time. This church has had times when we've been more welcoming and times when we've been less. In fact, I can think of a time early on when I even had to chastise you to speak to one another. But you did. You did. And I think that we're fairly welcoming now, although we only know that by what newcomers say to us. Today's reading out of Genesis is all about hospitality. It's about hospitality of Abraham and the inhospitality of Sarah. We'll get to more of what goes on there. But hospitality is a Christian value and virtue. It's something that is both directly and indirectly taught in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament. The Old Testament law, for example, prohibits the mistreatment of foreigners and strangers. In Exodus 22:21, we read, Do not mistreat 
or oppress a foreigner. For you were foreigners in Egypt. And in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, the author writes to the church, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. But what is hospitality? Well, according to dictionaries, hospitality is from the Latin hospitalitum. Hospitalitum which means friendliness towards guests. Not surprising, but succinct, friendliness towards guests. A great amount can be said about hospitality today, what it is, what it is not, how we should practice it. We're limited on time this morning. So allow it to suffice that God calls us to be hospitable. And we'll touch upon a couple things. I invite you to open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18 or look in your um, order of service. You can also find today's primary text there. Genesis chapter 18. And Genesis 18 is a breaking point in Genesis, according to most scholars. This is a section. So, you know, if books are divided into chapters or sections. This is one of those natural section breaks in this book. And we start a section that goes from Genesis 18 all the way through Genesis 19 with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's two points, principally, I think, that this passage makes. The first is this, that the habit of hospitality makes one open to the Lord. The habit of hospitality makes one open to the Lord. And the second is that nothing is too marvelous from the Lord. as found in verse 14. Nothing is too marvelous for the Lord. And correspondingly, there's two types of hospitality that we see demonstrated in this passage. There's a hospitality towards men, who in this case are angels at the very least of the Lord, if not the Lord himself. And then there's overt hospitality to the word of the Lord, right? So the first is welcoming people into your home. The second is welcoming the Lord's word into your life. There's much in the rest of this passage that needs lots of explanation, but predominantly there's three things that consist of hospitality in the ancient world. If you think about it, in the ancient world, if you are traveling, you are completely dependent on the hospitality of others. Yeah, you might take some provisions, you might have your own transportation, but there's no lodging. You can't stop at the local hotel or motel. There's no restaurants. It's not like you can pull over and eat at Denny's. There's no police. And so you're required to protect yourself. And so unless you're traveling with an entourage, you require the hospitality of those around you just to be safe. Because of those ancient dangers, all three of them, the ancient cultures put a high value on hospitality, and you actually still see this around the world and other parts outside of the United States. The reason for that is that it was necessary for survival. It was necessary for doing any kind of traveling. 
And so it became a mark of a civilized society to care for one's fellow man, particularly for the stranger. And of course, the Lord himself does that, commanding that, as we read from Exodus, that we are not to mistreat foreigners, he tells his people. Take advantage of them. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, the narrator gives us an insight that Abraham doesn't have. As we open and look at that text, we know something that Abraham does not know. Look at 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. First of all, you're probably wondering, what is the Lord here, right? Because we focused on that in sermons past, right? Sometimes it's the word of the Lord. Sometimes it's El Shaddai, the Lord, the Almighty. Here it's Yahweh, the great I Am, that is revealed later to Moses. Scholars and commentators in the ancient and modern, both ancient and modern, disagree on when Abraham finally knows that these are no ordinary men. But they do agree that initially he doesn't know that they aren't ordinary men. He thinks that they're just normal folks. Look at verses 2 and 3. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent to meet them and, bestow, and bowed rather himself to the earth and said, O Lord, I have found favor in your sight. Do not pass by your servant. Continue on, verse 4. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Notice, even when thinking that these are normal men, what does Abraham do? He's sitting in the front of his tent. You can picture it. It's a hot day, of course, and perhaps he's looking across barren land with the heat waves coming up, and he sees these men come by, these three men. And what does he do? Does he stay there and wait for them to come to him? This is kind of amazing. This old man gets up in the heat of the day and runs to the three. Now, how many of us do that when someone walks by our front porch? I certainly don't. Lots of people walk by my front porch, right? But Abraham, Abraham runs to these men and greets them and invites them in. This is the idea of ancient hospitality. And look how he greets them as great esteemed men. He looks at them from his tent, runs to them, bows himself to the earth and says, If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. St. Thomas Aquinas talks about the fact that in Christian hospitality, something is usually missing today. And that's the excitement by which we want someone to come and dwell with us. Right? Abraham is eager 
for these people to come into his tent. He's eager to feed them. He's eager to have them into his home. Let's continue. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I make a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and that after you may pass on since you have come to your servant. Now he addresses them as Lord in verse 3. But it's actually unclear what this means. Some people think that at this point, Abraham acknowledges that this is the Lord that we see in verse 1. But other people think that this is just a way of saying sir, right? Because the words Lord and sir in the ancient languages are pretty much interchangeable. It's just an image of honor and status. So does he know that this is God or not? We don't know. But no matter what, he treats them not just to a morsel, but a feast. He doesn't indifferently invite them into his home, but he runs to them, old man that he is, and offers them, quote-unquote, a morsel, which consists of three seas of flour, which in modern um, measurement is six gallon, so six gallon jars full of flour to make bread, and a calf. A calf. A few goats would have sufficed for any feast, but he kills a calf for them and puts on this elaborate meal for them at the drop of a hat. The scriptures give us this vivid detail of how Abraham welcomes them into his home and takes care of their every need in the midday. It's also interesting that in the midday was typically the time in these ancient cultures, particularly in the desert, where people took naps, right? How many of you like naps in the midday, especially in the summertime? I know I do. So Abraham would have been ready to take his nap as these folks approach him. And think about how you feel when you want to take a nap and the baby starts crying, in my case. Or someone knocks at the door. Or... Someone calls you on the phone. It's like, oh, man, I just want to take 20 minutes to sleep. And so, putting it in that perspective, we see even more that this is not just hospitality, but it's Abraham putting aside his comfort and going out of his way for his guests. It's a strange conversation as his guests finish eating. Look at verses 9 through 11 in chapter 18. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now at this point, Abraham knows the identity of these three men. He knows at the very least that they're angels from God. For who else could tell him of this miraculous promise that God gave him some years ago. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, 
and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? You see, here is further proof that these are no ordinary men. They can read the hearts of Sarah. The man can see her laughing to herself, even though she's hidden behind Abraham in the tent. But look at the next verse, verse 14. The Lord continues to speak. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And so here, which should be a time of great joy, instead we have Sarah rejecting fearful and then hiding behind her fear. Verse 15, But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they went, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Commentator Alan Ross, who writes on this passage, says this, that verse 9 is a story of annunciation. You all know that one of the feasts we celebrate in the Anglican Church in the Book of Common Prayer is the Feast of the Annunciation, right? It's the feast when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus, and gives him the word that gives her rather the word that she will bear a son and call his name Jesus. Look at the contrast between how Sarah reacts and how Saint Mary the Virgin reacts. Couldn't be greater right? Mary does ask, how is this to be? But not incredulously. She certainly doesn't laugh as Sarah laughs. And so she leaves with great joy, whereas Sarah just kind of leaves with this embarrassment, really. Notice, however, that the Lord doesn't take back his blessing from Sarah and Abraham. That the Lord's blessing still comes. And eventually, of course, this prophecy comes true as she does bear a son. And they call his name Isaac, which God in his irony means laughter. Laughter. Isaac. But here we see Sarah's doubt on display as she laughs. The narrator tells us that it's out of fear that she laughs to herself, within herself, within her heart. Sarah is very much like Zechariah in our gospel passage today, isn't she? Zechariah is a man of, of great faith. He's a priest and he serves at the temple. And he's in there offering incense at the altar of incense, as has been his time to do, and the New Testament. And the angel comes to him and tells him that he will, he and his barren wife will have a son. Of course, we know that that's John the Baptist. And look at his disbelief also. He also struggles and doubts. And yet God persists in giving him the blessing that he's said. You see, while we might rob ourselves of joy, 
in God's promises with our doubt. We cannot rob ourselves of his blessing. I'll say that again. While we might rob ourselves of the joy of God's blessing in our doubts, we cannot rob ourselves of God's blessing. Do you see the difference? Sarah suffers from an inhospitality. Her inhospitality is an inhospitality of the heart. And it's on dramatic contrast with Abraham and indeed even her hospitality initially to the three men. But she just can't take this good news into her heart. The church and individuals constantly struggle with hospitality. I constantly struggle with hospitality. I don't like to be hospitable. I don't like my orderly day messed up. Maybe you're like me. I always have ten things to do. I'm always behind on my list. I always have something better to do, at least in my mind. And the truth is that unless you make room and unless you actually plan for hospitality, you cannot be hospitable, either to other men and women or to God. That's the primary thing this text tells us, that in order to be hospitable, we have to plan for it. We have to make space for it. We have to have room for it. That looks like time. That looks like money. That looks like effort and energy. It looks like emotion. Right? I mean, how many times do we not want to deal with other people simply because we're spent at the end of the day? Sometimes we struggle to deal with other family members emotionally because we're spent at the end of the day, let alone strangers. And so part of planning for hospitality is good boundaries. Good boundaries. It seems a little bit counterintuitive, but it's true. There's an old saying, good fences make good neighbors. You ever heard that saying? Good fences make good neighbors. Good boundaries make good neighbors. Why? Because when things are clear, then you can be hospitable. Good boundaries enable hospitality. Why is this? Well, because we have to have a stable and orderly life in, in order to be hospitable to strangers. It does no good to invite someone into your house if your house is in turmoil. It does no good to invite yourself into the institution, a church or, or any institution, if your institution is a complete mess. You cannot be hospitable to people then. The search for hospitality is like the search for community. It does no good to seek to be hospitable without a larger framework. For example, the person who seeks community, a community of friends, and changes himself to fit into groups, whatever group he's in or she's in, is judged to be duplicitous and pitiful. Think back to your days in high school. Some of you younger ones, perhaps you're in these days or coming up to them. If you're not who you are, if you don't know your own identity, and you're searching for community, you won't find it. 
You won't find it because people will see right through that and people want genuineness. People want stability. People want dependability. So don't seek community. Seek friendship in who you are. But so it is with the person, an institution that seeks to be hospitable. If you're not setting boundaries, if you're not setting norms, if you're not setting order and stability, you could never invite someone in because there's nothing to invite them in to. Unless you know who you are, whose you are, what you believe, and what is inside and outside the limits of what you are, you can't invite someone else to be part of you. It's simple common sense. Abraham knows this. He used to be the father of nations. He's secure in God's promise. Look at the context of this chapter, chapter 18. What's happened before it? The covenant. The covenant. The Lord and he have set the boundaries. The promise is secure. There is stability in his life. Oh, sure, there's a lot of unknowns yet. And yet he rests secure in the Lord, so he has no problem throwing open his tent to strangers and inviting them in. He has no problem sharing his lavish wealth and time, right? Killing the calf, making this huge feast. Why? Because he's, he's not scared of tomorrow. He's not scared of what won't be there. But rather, he's secure in the Lord, trusting in his promises. He has arranged his life with the Lord's command to a life of stability and order, trusting in God, and therefore he's able to be hospitable. The same is true for us today. Before we had children, it was the goal of Leah and I to keep a part of our house or our apartment before that presentable for guests. Have you ever tried to do that? Just keep one room presentable for guests. Maybe the bathroom too, right? How hard that is, right? I mean, I'm the worst. I come home and I throw my coat on the chair and kick my shoes off and leave it there. And, of course, even without children, Leah's picking up after me. Now, with children, there's toys and all sorts of things spread about the floor of the living room. It's a hard thing to do. Yet, we ought to value that. We ought to value having a place set aside to entertain. You see, both Leah and I remember our parents and our godparents had, or our grandparents rather, had rooms set aside to entertain. Perhaps even you do too. Think back on this. It seems so passe now. But when I was small, almost everyone that I visited had a living room or a sitting room or a parlor. They called it different things, right? And in that parlor were the nice furniture, the, what we used to call the pretties, the little knickknacks, on the mantle, right? The figurines, all those things that are probably gone from a yesteryear. I remember it very clearly because as a child, when I went to my grandparents, we were forbidden to go into that room. The doors were closed and the bungee cord was over the, the doorknobs. Why? That was a room set aside for entertaining. It was set aside for people to come in and converse. There was no television in that room, Lord forbid. Probably not even a radio. I don't think there was even a radio in there. But the whole purpose was to sit and the, the, furniture, sh uh, the furniture faced one another so that you could talk. It was a bit mysterious, I confess. 
but it was the place for hospitality. And I still remember I brought my prom date to meet my grandparents. And for the first time ever, I was allowed to sit in that room with my date. And boy, I had arrived because they were entertaining us, right? I mean, it seems silly, doesn't it? In, in, in an informal world, in a world where we don't draw lines anymore, and, and yet there was something special to that that's missing today, right? Something special to that, that, that we were being honored. So hospitality today is challenging, and yet there's still ways to set aside space. You might not have a room for a, a sitting room or a parlor. Um, I mean, we don't. But there's still ways to be hospitable, to be able to invite someone in, at the very least because you don't have your underwear on the floor there and your laundry all strewn out, right? But it takes effort and resources and time. But according to God, I need to prioritize that. And so do you. We need to prioritize that as a church. And it gets tricky. Prioritizing hospitality sometimes means saying no, ironically. Again, back to those boundaries. So that we can excel in hosting some things and not poorly host others. Another part of planning it is to not let our selfishness, our laziness, our stinginess, our own comfort stand in the way. There's a fine line. Plan for hospitality, friends. For as Hebrews tell us, in it, sometimes we entertain angels unawares. We don't know who might walk through our door. We don't know who might knock on the door or yell across the fence to our yard. We don't know who we might be sitting across at a campfire smoking a cigar or having a cold beverage of some kind. The same is true for the church. The same is true for the church. We too have to practice hospitality and prepare and plan for it. You want to know one of the reasons why I've been so agitated about membership over the past six months? Why have we been working so hard to get our baptismal certificates in and to get our books up to date? Well, yes, of course, we're becoming a parish and that's a big thing. But this, too, is a way of planning for hospitality. For when you have boundaries, when you know who is of you and who is not, when you know what you believe and what you do not, then you can invite others into it. There's a reason that the bishop is having us strengthen our confirmation class, right? Our requirements now. Because the world is getting crazier and crazier, but if we're going to invite people to come with us and follow in the way of Christ, we need to be able to know who we are and what we're inviting them into. And so, we also, as a church, need to plan and prepare to be hospitable. We also need to be intentional about being hospitable, right? You can't just plan and set the boundaries and then not invite people. You can't just plan and set those things up and then have nowhere for people to go. Secondly, there's a type of spiritual hospitality where Sarah and Zachariah fall down, but 
where with the aid of the Holy Spirit we will not. And that is a hospitality of the heart. You see, Aristotle was right when he said that when we do things, when we practice things, when we engage in behavior, it actually shapes our habits. And the scriptures say that it doesn't just shape our habits, but it shapes our hearts. So when we're hospitable to other people, we become more hospitable to the Lord. And vice versa. And vice versa. St. Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 12 of his first epistle, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. What St. Paul is here saying is that being spiritually hospitable is not being open to anything that comes down the pike. Right? There's lots of false prophets. There's lots of people who claim spirituality who are, in fact, not speaking for the Lord. So hospitality, once again, requires discernment and boundaries. St. John writes to the church in his epistle, his first epistle, chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits and see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so, as we are hospitable in our hearts towards the Lord, we are called to be discerning. This is not the open-mindedness of our culture. That's not hospitality of heart. One of my friends once said, that person, speaking of another person, that person's so open-minded, his brain's going to fall out. Boy, that's true. Open-mindedness is weighing things, entertaining things in charity, but always going back to the Scriptures, the Word of God, and to His people and to the church to see and weigh whether that is something to be hospitable towards. And yet... We are not to close our minds and not listen to the Lord either, right? We are not to be stuck in our own ways. We are not to ignore what God calls us to. We're not to laugh because it seems too wonderful or too impossible. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Is anything too wondrous for the Lord? The answer is no. Nothing is too hard or too wondrous for the Lord. So let us resolve that hospitality, number one, is a value for us. That it's important. As an individual or a household, you might want to sit down and make a plan for it. How can you plan to be hospitable for your neighbors? As a church, we're currently doing that. We're making plans. Plans of how to be benevolent plans of how to evangelize, membership requirements, tracks for learning and discipleship. As we engage in the work of outreach, let hospitality, true hospitality, lead us. And let us personally always be hospitable to the Lord as He calls us according to His purpose for His glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.